Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan. We are talking today with Dr. Cheryl Lothar, a reader in the School of Law, the former director of the Human Rights Center, and a fellow at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University in Belfast. Situated within the field of transitional justice, Cheryl's research interests focus on truth recovery and dealing with the past, victims, former combatants, reparations, and the use of atrocity atrocity sites. She is currently working on several research projects related to victimhood in Northern Ireland, reparations and victimhood in transitional societies, and representations of victimhood at dark tourist sites with a special focus on Cambodia. In 2021, Cheryl was a Fulbright uh, Irish Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and in the uh, 2022-2023 academic year, she held a British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship, during which she worked on a new monograph for Oxford University Press on the construction and reproduction of victimhood in transitional justice. Her research garnered awards from the British Society of Criminology and the Social Legal Studies Association. She's the author of many articles and a monograph, Truth, Denial and Transition, Northern Ireland and the Contested Past, published with uh, Rutledge in 2014. Today, we are talking about another one of his uh, of her publications, Research Handbook on Transitional Justice, which she co-edited with Luke Moffat and Dov Jacobs. The first edition of the handbook appeared in 2017, and a second edition was just recently published in August 2023 with Edgar Allen. Edward Elgar. The um, handbook is an important reference tool in the area of transitional justice, which focuses on measures adopted by state and civil society actors in view of redressing the legacy of gross human rights violations that occurred sometimes in the recent past. Cheryl, thank you for accepting this interview. Thank you very much, Lavinia. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to contribute to this podcast and have the opportunity to talk about the research handbook on transitional justice. I'm very happy that you accepted. Let's start with the very beginning. Why did you and your co-authors set out to put together this research handbook on transitional justice? How did you get the idea and what did you hope to accomplish? Well, our background to becoming involved in the Research Handbook 
is a little bit um, unexpected, actually. In 2016-2017, my colleague and I at Queen's University Belfast, Luke Moffat, we were we had been asked to contribute chapters to the research handbook that Dov Jacobs from Leiden was editing. And we subsequently learned further along the process that Dov had a very busy life. Um, his legal practice had really taken off and he was struggling to combine the so the, the dual roles of legal practice and academic life and then the huge task of editing the research handbook on top of that so myself and Luke Moffat were actually invited by Dov to come on board and help him pull the research handbook together and work with him as editors on the book so in many respects it was actually not something that we had set out to do we had certainly been keen to contribute. I had written a chapter on truth commissions and Luke had written a chapter on reparations. But we both firmly believed in the importance of having a handbook on transitional justice because, as many of our listeners will know, transitional justice is such a vast and evolving area of scholarship. And sometimes it can be extremely useful to have one book that you can pick off the shelf and it gives you eight to 10,000 words on the core transitional justice topics. So we really believed in the idea of the handbook and being able to create a resource like that. But we're also very busy with our own teaching commitments and we teach transitional justice to undergraduate and postgraduate students in Belfast. And we were keen to create a resource that we would be able to say to our students, this, for example, is your first class on amnesties. Here is a chapter that will give you the first couple of steps up on the ladder to learning what you need to learn about amnesties and having chapters that are referenced in such a way that students or other people who are new to the area can then read away from them and they can make sure that like their first steps in that academic investigation are grounded in really good sources of literature. But Luke and I also do a lot of policy work and we were doing a large project at the time that involved field work in Colombia, Nepal, Guatemala, Peru and Uganda. And we did a lot of work with civil society organisations and legal collectives. And we realised for this, so very much for the same reasons, that there is a need to have a book that we could say to people, here's the current state of play for example, on the topic of international criminal tribunals. So really, we had our own academic interests in terms of our areas of interest, but also then the opportunity to really pull together a book that would have wide appeal and would make you know, a really important contribution to the scholarship. And indeed, the research handbook is one of the... Uh, most used uh, reference tools uh, in the field of transitional justice. So uh, uh, how do you think uh, uh, it compares with uh, other res- um, uh, reference tools uh, produced, uh, like the, um, like the um, Encyclopedia of Transitional Justice, but also, uh, also the um, textbook of uh, transitional justice uh, uh, produced by, uh, put together by uh, Olivera Simic? I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a huge amount of scholarship on transitional justice. 
I mean, if you type the words transitional justice into Google Scholar, you will return tens of thousands of hits in a matter of seconds. But we think the handbook is unique for a number of different reasons. There are, of course, the encyclopedias on transitional justice, and they contain hundreds of different entries on transitional justice topics and on, for example, different mechanisms of transitional justice in an array of different jurisdictions. And that's really valuable and really important. But those contributions are maybe only a couple of hundred words each, so maybe only 300 words each. So it gives you a very quick introduction to a topic, which is really important. But by their very nature, they're an encyclopedia, so they can't go any further than that. So for us, for the importance of the handbook was, you know, we had a considerable word count to play with. I think the version of the handbook, edition two, that was just published in August 2023, I mean, that's 260,000 words. So we had an opportunity to offer contributors a chapter between eight and 10,000 words. So they had the scope to be able to expand um, and discuss the issues in depth and whether they wanted to do that in a theoretical sense or to draw in, for example, fieldwork or other policy related work that they had been working on. We had the scope to be able to do that. And I think then that marks this handbook out from other collections on transitional justice, because by its very nature, this is a handbook. Um, and it's not designed to be an expert collection, for example, on one specific topic. We try to get the expert contributors on the individual topics and bring them together in one space. So when you have sort of between 26 and 28 chapters to play with, you are able to do that deep dive across the topics and you can present that material in a way that then is useful for a number of different audiences. So I think that's what marks a handbook out as distinctive, that it is also an edited collection. It's not just Luke and I or Luke and Dov and I writing about these chapters. We had the privilege of being able to ask people like yourself, Lavinia, to say, you know, would you be willing to contribute to this? We really like your work. And I think one of the strengths of the book is that a lot of our contributors from around the world really wanted to come together in that collective fashion and we were able to bring together scholars from the global south with the, the global north with a very established senior academics but also with new talented early career researchers and I think being able to bring that blend of voices to the table um, gives another layer of distinctiveness to the handbook. Uh, well said, and I have to say that I'm uh, using the handbook um, <clears throat> frequently in my work on transitional justice. Cheryl, could you briefly explain to our listeners what is the structure of the research handbook? What kind of themes are included and how they are organized? Sure. Well, maybe I can make reference to the latest version of the handbook and then refer back to the first edition. So on the back of the success of the first edition of the Research Handbook in 2017, um, it was a, a success that we perhaps didn't envisage. Uh, we knew it was good, but we didn't really expect it to take off in the way that it did. So that's been wonderful. But on the back of that success, Edward Elgar, our publishers, asked us, would we like to produce a second edition? And we jumped at the chance and 
we've organised the book in a similar fashion to the first edition into four substantive areas. And so the first part of the the book looks at the concepts of transitional justice. So that's very theoretical in nature. And it looks, for example, at the evolution of the idea of transitional justice through to thinking about how transitional justice intersects with the rule of law, but also how transitional justice uh, interfaces with local justice initiatives. So it's important, obviously, not to only frame transitional justice in respect to top-down initiatives, but also to think about local homegrown or grassroots justice responses. And in that section on the concepts of transitional justice, we also look at gender and masculinities. And the chapter on masculinities actually is is a new chapter in the handbook this year by Brandon Hamber, Philip Schulz and Gulia Mesmer. And we were very keen to be able to bring that chapter on masculinities in because, as is normal, we have the chapter on gender, but quite often gender focuses on women. And we thought it was crucial to be able to turn the spotlight on the experiences of men as well. Um, so we have concepts of transitional justice. And then in the second part of the book, we organised it under the theme of the actors of transitional justice. So thinking about, for example, the role of civil society, the involvement of the United Nations, but then also thinking um, one of the key actors, of course, and what many people would argue transitional justice is for, are, is the experience of victims and survivors. So there's a chapter on victims and survivors. And then there's also, again, a new chapter on witnesses and witnessing in transitional justice. And again, that's a new area of scholarship and written by a very promising early career scholar, Benjamin Thorne. And then we move on, so we have our concepts on our actors, and then we think about the mechanisms of transitional justice in part three of the book. And I think that's the mechanisms that you would expect to see. So there's chapters on international criminal tribunals, there's chapter a chapter on truth commissions, one on reparations, one on apologies, and one on archives. And that chapter on archives is a new addition to the book. So we didn't have that chapter in 2017, and again, that's, that chapter is reflecting the evolution of scholarship and practice on transitional justice, that we are now paying increasing importance to precisely what is in the archives. And also thinking about archives, not just as a tool that can be used in prosecutions, but archives as a site of transitional justice in and of themselves. And then finally, um, and perhaps for me, one of the most exciting Parts of the book is our fourth part about expanding the gaze of transitional justice. And this is where we, I think, we're really free to be able to bring together the what all these new areas of transitional justice scholarship and the way transitional justice has really expanded beyond its quite narrow parameters and has done that really quite rapidly, probably in the last five to eight years. So we have a chapter on transitional justice and colonialism. There's one on historical injustices, thinking particularly about slavery. There's a chapter on trauma and the psychosocial dimension of transitional justice. We were able to bring in a colleague of ours in Belfast, the former UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism, Fanula Neolan. So we have the, a chapter on the intersection of transitional justice and counterterrorism. There's one on a chapter on climate change, which is a very exciting area of transitional justice scholarship and a new departure. 
but then also, and I suppose in many ways, reflecting our own looking at his own geographical position in Belfast. Um, as many of our listeners know, Ireland, as well as places like Australia and Canada, has suffered badly from a legacy of historical institutional abuse and clerical abuse. And what we see in those contexts is the language and the practice of transitional justice now being used in what we call non-paradigmatic transitions. And so we have a chapter from our colleague in Dublin, James Gallen, on transitional justice and institutional abuse. So we really went from, I suppose, like the theoretical to the players, to the mechanisms, and then to transitional justice and beyond to the new areas where uh, this discipline is being imported into. Uh, thank you very much for this overview. And it uh, explains the popularity and uh, of the handbook and why so many transitional justice scholars and practitioners find it so useful in their work. What what can readers find in the various chapters? What and how were contributors instructed to write? We really asked our contributors to write with the idea of a handbook in mind. And so this wasn't going to be a text that required expert knowledge to be able to read any of the, the individual chapters. It's really designed to be a book that you can get your hands on, you can go to the chapter, say, for example, you have been watching the news and you have picked up on a bit of a discussion about should there be a truth commission in America looking into race relations, for example. And the idea of the handbook is you can literally get your hands on the handbook, turn to the chapter on truth commissions, and that chapter will give you a good grounding of what a truth commission is, what the ideal aims and objectives are, It'll tell you something about how, how truth commissions have been established, how they have evolved over, over the years, and also some of the critiques of this mechanism of transitional justice. So it gives you that good grounding, and then you would be able to turn to a later chapter in the book to think about, for example, the history of transitional justice and colonialism, or transitional justice and structural violence, or even the chapter on... Um, transitional justice and legacies of slavery. So again, the idea is you can get enough from those chapters that it gives you the grounding and then it adds some of the complexities and the key debates and the nuances on top of that. And that gives you that foundation to be able to take your reading or your studies elsewhere. And I think that's one of the things that we really worked hard with authors about, particularly in how they reference their chapters. So our chapters are heavily referenced, really, I think, across the book. But we wanted that so that any reader, say, for example, a student, and we assign the chapter on amnesties and transitional justice as the core reading for a lecture on amnesties, they can then get their head around the idea of amnesties, but also they can use that chapter and that we know that that chapter has a really strong bibliography in it that someone can then use. And you know that they're going to go away and read credible sources, but also sources that give you a diversity of opinion. And, you know, we don't want this to be a book 
that just sings the praises of transitional justice or is overly romantic about any of the different mechanisms or concepts. There's plenty of challenge and plenty of critique in here as well. So we made sure that we captured all of that kind of that breadth of opinion, I think, within the individual chapters so that we could really stand over it and say, this is this is the book that will will get you started. And actually, we saw that in practice actually just yesterday. So in Belfast, in Queen's University Belfast, in our law, law school, we, I think because of our location in, in Northern Ireland and the fact that Northern Ireland was obviously a site of conflict for so long and a site of gross human rights violations, we have a lot of expertise in transitional justice and human rights in the School of Law at Queen's. And we often get visiting delegations of lawyers, human rights activists, or other people involved in conflict transformation to come and learn from the Northern Ireland experience. So actually just yesterday, myself and Luke Moffat and one of our colleagues, Louise Mallander, who has written the chapter on amnesties in the book, we hosted a group of um, visiting judges from Ukraine and they were coming to really learn from us about reparations, about the nature of so the, the peace process in Northern Ireland um, and about the experience of victims and survivors, particularly in light of really the failure to comprehensively deal with the past in Northern Ireland. And actually we gave the judges copies of the handbook and because they were not familiar particularly familiar with the idea of transitional justice or for example about reparations or truth commission and so we were able to say to them look take this handbook away with you and you know it'll give you what you need to get you up to speed they were obviously the experts in, in their areas of legal practice but it was fantastic to be able to hand over a book which is full of you know contributions by the world's experts and say like this will get you going, this will stand you in good stead. And actually, you know, seeing their reaction to us giving them the book was really positive. And you felt like, well, actually, this is a book that has impact. It's not just a book that is hopefully going to sit, you know, it's going to sit on the shelves in a library and maybe someone lifts it down once every five years. We hope that this is a book that is as useful to people who are writing academic books as it is to people who are actually doing transitional justice and, and delivering justice in some of the most challenging and, and controversial circumstances in the world today. This is such an empowering uh, story, and uh, it just shows you um, how um, um, academics uh, like you and like me and like others um, uh, can uh, can say something relevant to practitioners and um, how transitional justice can be used to new cases uh, that we uh, we have around. I usually ask uh, authors if they would change anything uh, to their books, but you already published uh, the second uh, edition. Could you tell our listeners how your how your how uh, you're thinking about uh, the handbook uh, and the topics uh, you wanted to include the change from the first to the second edition? And also, is there a 
topic, even in the second edition, that you would say for the third edition, I want to include this? Well, I'm very reluctant to publicly say a third edition because, number one, that's out of our hands. That is the decision of Edward Elgar. But also, when I finished this book, I swore I was never doing it again. Because, so, um, you know, we have 29 chapters in the second edition and with 38 authors. And our authors were fantastic, a really great group of people to work with. But at times, it definitely felt like a lot of moving parts. So. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, one's mind does wander and you do think about, well, maybe in the future I, I could do X or Y or Z. <laughs> so now I've just said this publicly, of course. But we did change some things, certainly from the first edition to the second edition. I think as our own thinking on transitional justice developed, I think as we got more confident as editors and we assumed more ownership over the process, and in the first edition, there is a distinct section in that book that looks at country-specific case studies. And we don't have that in the second edition, largely because we wanted to include such a, a new, so much more conceptual material. We wanted to introduce new thematic issues into the second edition. So we had to make a compromise as to whether we continued with the individual case studies or we asked our authors, including yourself, Lavinia, as to whether there was a more thematic topic that you would like to write a chapter on. So we did have to make that compromise and we think that compromise or that balance has paid off because we were then able to introduce so many new conceptual and thematic chapters. So that was one of the major changes the other change then was also to bring in, as I said earlier, distinct chapters on new areas of transitional justice scholarship and areas that I think probably when we, we published the first edition in 2017, probably weren't really being written on. So I think, you know, people were beginning to maybe start to talk about transitional justice and the environment. But there certainly wasn't the breadth of scholarship that there is now, for example. Likewise, with the chapter on transitional justice and counterterrorism, I think that chapter is one of the first chapters that actually brings these two areas into conversation. So we really wanted to capture how transitional justice has evolved as a discipline, but also just in and of themselves, I think exploring issues like colonialism or race relations or institutional abuse for people who are interested in conflict and human rights, these are some of the issues of our times. And so it felt appropriate that the book should make space to be able to do that. But of course, as I said, you do often think, well, there's more, there's inevitably more. And I think uh, personally, I would like a chapter that focuses exclusively on non-state armed groups or combatants. When I mean, we have a chapter on victims and survivors, and I think that should be paralleled by a chapter on people who were involved in armed groups. I'm interested as well, for example, in the relationship between transitional justice and cultural heritage. And I think that is becoming an increasingly important topic that we need to grapple with. Um, there's also part of me that would like to see 
standalone chapters on how transitional justice has responded to specific violations. So we often look, for example, at sexual violence. But I think it would be a worthy exploration to, for example, include torture or um, displacement. So there are so I think there, there could also be, you know, call for having a part of the book that looks at transitional justice and specific harms. So there there's always scope. I think there's always a wish list, if you like. Um, but as to whether that is is me that brings that wish list together or that is somebody else, that's a different question. <laughs> I see that you are living in a household where even the cat is very interested in uh, transitional justice. Uh, the cat has contributed. Uh, it's there lurking in the background. This is Tabitha. Tabitha, I often refer to as my research assistant. So any t- she loves a Zoom call. So anytime there's an opportunity to get on the screen, she is involved. So she hasn't tired of transitional justice herself. And I think that's probably a reflection of just how interesting an area this is to work in. So let's uh, clarify for our uh, listeners. Um, Is a third edition on the horizon? Do you have any plans to reissue this uh, handbook uh, every several years? Um, That's not really anything, a decision that would be in my hands. We certainly, when we did the first edition, we didn't even think of a second edition. That was really, it was our publisher, Edward Elgar, who came back to us probably about two years ago. So I think really it will depend on how well the second edition sells, but also if we think there is scope for a third edition. I, I think there probably is, but that's not, unfortunately not a decision that, that we could make. And the second edition was only published there in August 2023. So it, it will be a while before we get a sense of how well that has sold and what the reviews for the book are like as well. I see. As you have watched uh, transitional justice develop as a field, uh, what are your thoughts about its strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. And sometimes I, I, I do get concerned or I wonder, is there something of a bit of a, a role creep within transitional justice or like a mission creep in that we used to talk about transitional justice or transitional justice used to be really conceptualized as something that was quite unusual and something that was quite exotic. And I think it took people a little bit of time to get on board with it. And then as the, the strengths, for example, of truth commissions or grassroots approaches to dealing with the past came apparent. I think transitional justice as a discipline and a field of practice got became more legitimate. There was more, it became more credible. There was more respectability around it. And I think that's been paralleled in the growth of, for example, international NGOs, which have an explicitly transitional justice future or focus. And if you look at, you know, institutions like the European Union, they will have dedicated units of work that focus on transitional justice. So it is definitely, it definitely has morphed into a more respectable discipline. But then by the same token, I do wonder, is it now a case of transitional justice all the time? And I wonder, is there sometimes uh, in like the rush to benefit from transitional justice? I do wonder, do we not necessarily critically engage with some of the challenges either or the weaknesses either of individual mechanisms 
or the very concepts of transitional justice themselves. And it's very easy, for example, to talk about, you know, simplistic ideas about survivors should reveal something of their traumatic past and that they will be healed in inverted commas. But yet we have known since the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 1998 that that is certainly not the case. But then you see the language of transitional justice being imported into, for example, the conversation on dealing with the legacy of historical institutional abuse and clerical abuse. And I sometimes think in the rush to benefit from transitional justice, we actually haven't given, we haven't paused to really engage with some of the critiques and to think critically about, is this really the best way that we can approach these issues? And also, I think it's really important to bear in mind that it should never be a cookie cutter approach. It should always, you know, if you're talking about mechanisms or concepts of transitional justice, they have to be made real to the context in which they're being employed. And that takes time. And I think most fundamentally that involves consultation with the people who are actually going to be engaging with these mechanisms and who may be the beneficiaries. And we know from international practice that the most successful transitional justice interventions are the ones that have actually been designed in consultation with victims and survivors, with members of armed groups, with different communities, so that that can actually, so that those mechanisms, those concepts are real to those individuals, that they feel that there's a sense of ownership in the process of justice and the process of post-conflict reconstruction. So, um, Cheryl, what are your plans for the future? Uh, well, at the moment, I am finishing off a second book. It's a sole authored book that I hope will be published next year. It's under contract with Oxford University Press. And the book looks at the construction, reproduction and politicization of victimhood and transitional justice. So the title is Constructing Victimhood Beyond Innocence and Guilt in Transitional Justice. And that book is very much motivated by the work that I have done with victims and survivors here in Northern Ireland, but also in other transitional contexts such as Colombia, where I've had the opportunity to do extended periods of field work. That said, the book itself is structured by just over 70 semi-structured interviews with victims and survivors of the Northern Ireland conflict. And the idea behind the book is that transitional justice as a discipline has made considerable strides in complicating the notion of victimhood. And so there's a lot of discussion about moving beyond conceptualizations of innocent and guilty victims to thinking, for example, about complex political victims or complex victims. And for any of our, our listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with the, that term, the idea is or the, the reality is that in situations of conflict, in particular, when we're talking about mass human rights violations or mass atrocities, it's very difficult to put a neat dividing line down the parties to the conflict and say that these people are victims and these people are perpetrators. Often those categories are much more blurred than we would think at first glance or indeed sometimes as the media reports on conflict. The reality is much more complex and so victims can commit harms, victims can be perpetrators. Those who are perpetrators 
may also be victims. They may have been victimized. And as a result of that victimization, for example, involve themselves in conflict, in armed groups, or they may be victims as a result of their involvement in conflict, maybe by being uh, harmed by the state, for example, during periods of imprisonment, or they may be struggling uh, post-conflict with the traumatic events, with the psychological consequences of their involvement in conflict. So the two categories are much more blurred. And so there is a need to go beyond innocence and guilt in how we understand the construction and reproduction and politicization of victimhood. And that's uh, a development that I welcome. But I was also increasingly aware that while we had made these strides in going beyond innocence and guilt, the conversation on victimhood and trans- in transitional justice had really stopped at that point. It had stopped at the conversation around complex victimhood. But yet, as I was really aware from doing fieldwork in, in Northern Ireland and in other transitional jurisdictions or post-conflict contexts, victimhood is, is also constructed by, for example, hierarchies of victimhood. So those victims, for example who are deemed to be heroes for the cause. But on the other hand, those victims and survivors whose harms are silenced and that we never hear about. But it's also, victimhood is also constructed by voice, for example. So thinking about what voices do we hear? What voices do we not hear? Or what happens when we sometimes inadvertently freeze victims and survivors in one particular narrative? And the whole of their identity gets reduced to that one moment in time. And then you need to add on top of that the role of agency and thinking particularly about, well, how do victims groups construct victimhood? And I think they can do that in incredibly positive and powerful ways. But what we've also seen here in Northern Ireland in particular is a real politicization of victims and victims groups, where victims and their personal stories of trauma and pain have been captured by political parties and sometimes captured by victim scripts and used for their political capital or used to score political points. And they've done that in a way that does not respond to the needs of victims and survivors. So you have hierarchies of victimhood, you have the use of victims' voices, the use or capture of victims' agency. But then there's also the contrast to that and thinking about, well, what about those forms of victimhood that are silenced or denied? And so I'm interested in thinking about, on the one hand, why do some people prefer, why do they make an active choice to say to stay silent about what they experienced? And that might be the result of fear. It might be the, a desire to protect themselves or their families from recrimination or even to protect younger generations from you know, absorbing that trauma. But then there's other forms of victimhood that are silenced. And sometimes those forms of victimhood are silenced because they are uncomfortable forms of victimhood. So, for example, women and men who have suffered sexual violence or what we see here in Northern Ireland, members of the unionist pro-state community who were harmed by the state, by the state to whom they were supposedly loyal. And there's very little recognition of their victimhood. And then finally, layered on top of that, um, I am also interested in how victimhood is constructed and reproduced by the physical landscape around us. So thinking about how 
flags and symbols, wall murals, how visiting sites of atrocity, like gardens of remembrance, prisons, places where massacres took place, how what we see and what we hear, but also what we don't see and what we don't hear in these sites, how that reproduces victimhood as well. So I'm hoping, as I said, to go beyond innocence and guilt and then beyond again. And I'm hoping through the intersection of these sort of seven different themes that we can come to a more rounded understanding of how victimhood is constructed in transitional justice and therefore actually be able to respond to the situation and the needs of victims and survivors in a more effective victim-centered way. Well, thank you very much for this um, very fascinating uh, interview. Our guest today at New Books Network was Dr. Cheryl Lothar, a reader in the School of Law, Queen's University in Belfast. We talked about um, the uh, two editions of the research handbook of um, transitional justice that uh, she co-edited. And uh, uh, I thank you, Cheryl. And uh, I think that uh, we should uh, talk soon about uh, your new book uh, that will appear, I guess, uh, next year. Yes, 2024. I'm not 100% sure just yet, but it will probably be a 2024 book. So So we will talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you very much.